and going on social media every day and seeing like the ideal body shape is like 110 pounds when why how did that become the ideal like why isn't strong and like aggressive and super athletes like why is that not what's like the top the top body shape I guess welcome to unspoken bravery I'm your host Erin Milzinski a multiple time Olympian Skiing started as my first love and quickly became my greatest teacher. This podcast is meant to take a deep dive behind the capes of our everyday superheroes and find out what's under the brave spirits, the fearless feats, and the nerves of steel. It's normal to feel fear. Hardships lurk around every corner, and yet these roadblocks can be met with a challenger's mindset and turned into wonderful gifts. It's time to celebrate imperfections, to build bravery from setbacks, and to take our goals to the next level. So let's dive right in. Hello, everyone, and happy Canadian Thanksgiving. A little while ago, I asked you who you would like to hear on Unspoken Bravery, And many, many of you answered that you would love to hear from our younger generation on the Canadian ski team. So you asked, and I delivered. Joining me today is my talented, hardworking, kind, and mature former teammate, Britt Richardson. Britt is 19 years old from Canmore, Alberta. She competed in her first year of fist during the 2019-2020 season for Burke Mountain Academy, which means that her first year of fist was cut short due to COVID. But her second year of FIS was arguably even stranger, as COVID caused a NORAM circuit to be cancelled, so Britt found herself masked up and racing and training largely in Europe. Despite everything, Britt defied the odds and was named to the Canadian ski team for the 2021-2022 season, which made it a beautiful bookend for me as it was her first year on the team and my final year. Britt stepped up to the plate, making her World Cup debut in Solden, which is the longest, steepest, and gnarliest pitch on the tour. At her second World Cup race in Kranska Gora, Britt placed 22nd, which is incredible. And on the NORAM circuit, she placed second in the GS NORAM overall, which means that she has a World Cup spot in every GS race of the 2022-2023 season. I am so excited for you to hear this interview with Britt, who is wise beyond her years. So let's get it started. Welcome, Britt, to Unspoken Bravery. Thank you for having me, Erin. I'm really happy to be on this podcast. Yeah, me too. A lot of people asked for it, actually. They're like, we want your younger teammates. I know I'm not <laughs> skiing, but you're still my teammate for now. Yeah. <laughs> um, how was New Zealand? You just got back. Are you super jet-lagged? I'm actually dealing with the jet lag all right. I like force myself to not nap, so... That's good. Um, the camp was really awesome. We have like a lot of new coaches, a few new athletes. So there's a lot of changes going on, but I think we're all working together really well, which is pretty awesome. And I'm excited to see where the season takes us. Yeah, that's really cool. And can you say a little bit what your journey was to get to this year? Just kind of summarize the last couple of years. Yeah. So I attended Berkman Academy, a ski school in Vermont for my grade 11 and 12 year of high school. And then after graduating, I was named to the national team. So that was last year. 
my first year on the Canadian team. And then, yeah, now I'm going into my second year. That's so cool. And last year was so cool to watch you. I mean, I'm so happy we overlapped. And I keep saying that my chapter of this Canadian ski story ended um, and you're kind of the next chapter and you're continuing that legacy. So I was really happy to be on the team with you for a year and also to see that the Canadian skiing is left in your hands because it was just a dream being your teammate and to (laughs) kind of see that next generation. So that was really cool. Yeah, I was really excited to have that one year overlap. I think I had so much to learn from you and you had so much to like offer and like information to give out, which was so helpful for me and to like make my transition from a club team to the national team. So now I'm bringing that to the new athletes on the team. Yeah, that's really cool. Cause now you're kind of the, not the veteran, but the mentor maybe, cause it's your second year and we have a couple first years there. Yeah. Even though they are a little older than me, like, I feel like we're kind of the same age and I feel like I'm able to give them a lot of input on coming into the team and trying to help them out to make it a smooth transition. Yeah, that's so cool. That's so cool. How was your transition kind of coming from an academy in Vermont and then jumping on the national team, maybe with people that you looked up to or watched race, but how was that transition? I have to say at first it was like kind of terrifying. I think I had a bit of a different transition than like some other people I know. Like I didn't do any invitee camps. I didn't like work with any of the coaches like at NORAMS or any training events like that. So I literally, my first camp on the team was when I met everyone. I didn't know. (laughs) So true. I knew Aaron Lozinski as an athlete on the Canadian team through Instagram and like on TV. And I knew nothing about her as a person or like anything like that. So it was a very cool experience though, to be kind of coming from one of the older athletes at Burke to now being the youngest and be able to just absorb all the information I could. And like, you guys have been on the team for a lot of years. So there's like so much information that you guys wouldn't even realize was like new to me, but it was like a whole new world. So that was really cool. But I remember like the first night on our first camp, you guys were talking about like getting married and buying houses. I'm like, wow, I graduated high school like six days ago. (laughs) That's my experience with like Britt Janik and Emily Bryden. And they were talking about buying houses. And I was like, I have no money. I have nothing. I don't like, how are we talking about this? But I guess that's just how life, yeah, um, how life goes. Yeah. I think we kind of had similar entrances onto the team with being like very young compared to the other athletes and like It was just very eye-opening, I'm sure, for you as well. Yeah, yeah. But uh, for mine, it was a little bit different because you entered the team and you kind of entered a World Cup team. You know, you did a lot of NORAM, so you kind of had your own thing going on. Um, I entered being on a development team, so I was surrounded by quite a few girls, I don't know, five or six girls my age, which is kind of what you have a little bit now. Now, yeah. Um, But you were kind of just thrown in there and, (laughs) you know, at the dinner table with us and traveling in the cars. and I mean... I like think back to the first time we roomed together and I was the oldest athlete on the tech team and you were the Uh youngest. And the first night we roomed together, I set my alarm for the wrong time. I think we had a day off or something, but I woke you up an hour earlier than we had to. I was like feeling so badly. I was like, I'm supposed to be a mentor. I'm supposed to be good at this. And that same night I started feeling pretty sick Oh God, that's quite the experience. (laughs) It was quite the like 
bonding experience I think yeah, because I, I knew so. you but not super well mm-hmm. and then I got sick to my stomach for the first time since <laughs> I was your age actually I hadn't puked since I was 18 oh god and an hour later I hear you in the bathroom puking and I guess and we then got food us poisoning. up <sighs> all night just one in the bathroom and the next and the next oh, oh that was a brutal time yeah, and I think the worst was packing up the next morning and having and to drive all, all those way. hours. Oh my god! Oh my gosh! And then I'm train like sitting indoor. in the van. Yeah, and I was like, I can't, Jay, I can't. <laughs> it's like we need Gatorade and we need a croissant. We yeah, need literally. Yeah, we but that's like zero energy. I know. I that I felt so bad. But I think that's what people always ask, like, how do you bond with teammates? And we always do these like team bonding things as you're, you know, I've coached a few times and we were doing team bonding, but I think some we of the had some trauma, you, trauma bonding. Yeah. I think some of the things you overlook is like those really tough experiences. Yeah. Especially the pack up and then like going for walks and having to be on snow the very next day. Yeah. I think that really solidified that we were going to be friends even despite you being first year on the team and it was my last yeah, year on I the think, team. <laughs> I think we both remembered that day very clearly and I do think that that was kind of a moment in our like friendship I guess that like we kind of clicked and started bonding so that's it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah really tear you down <laughs> to the bottom and then we built back up from there. Yeah from the worst thing it <sighs> moved right up so yeah you know. Yeah. And I really tried to, when I was on the team, not speak too much, like give too much advice because it can be overwhelming or it can kind of seem like a know-it-all or, you know, whatever, but Mm -hmm. just try to do my thing and be a good influence by doing what I hoped was the right thing. For me, like just like watching is really helpful for me. Like talking is and like telling me stuff is one thing, but for me to just be able to like watch you guys warm up to get ready, like for the day of training to your on hill warm up, your drills is like more than you guys probably even realize. That's so cool to hear because now that I'm coaching a little bit, I'm like, how, what's the biggest thing that I can give, you mm-hmm. know? And it does really help those days that I ski in gates with the kids because it's like, this is what I do in the morning. This is how I warm mm-hmm. up before I start in the course. This is the drill. These are the drills I do that it's almost showing by doing instead of yeah. just kind of standing there and saying like, this is the work that needs to be done. But I guess that's my question for you. Is it, I heard in an interview you did that you've just kind of set small goals along the way. Like, okay, mm-hmm. your first goal was probably to, decrease your points and the next goal okay to make the national team and now you're on the national team okay your goal last year was to um, get a spot on world cup full-time so you had to come first or second in norams and on then to race world cup like you had little i mean they're huge steps but mm-hmm. it's not like at 17 the goal you told everyone was like i'm going to win the olympics it was like my goal is to make the national yeah, team exactly that how how important was goal setting for you And how did you go about it? I think it really helps me kind of move forward day by day because it's so overwhelming thinking I want to be an Olympic gold medalist, which, yeah, that is the goal. But what can I do now and today to make me get there? So it's whether it's this month, this training day, this run, like how can I better myself at this moment to slowly build up and like reach my final goal? Because I know if I just tell myself day in and day out, I want to be an Olympic medalist, like, okay, cool. And so it's about 
you know, what's the step to get there? First, I got to build my way up on the NORAM and then start winning NORAMs and then get spots in the World Cup and then World Cup points. And then it's such a progress that you got to look at it by, I think, cutting it into like little sections to make it reasonable. Yeah, I love that. That's such a mature way of thinking about it too, because I think when people have failure, they see it as a failure in the big picture instead mm-hmm. of just, okay, today didn't go great and I didn't reach my goal today, but I can try again tomorrow. What can I do in this moment to be better today and then tomorrow? Instead of thinking, I failed, I'm never going to do it. It's such a mature mm-hmm. way of thinking, kind of being so process-oriented. And I, I wonder, because you have a bit of, you have a skiing legacy in your family. Can you tell us a bit about the role that your parents played and a little bit about the past, their past in skiing? Yeah. So both my parents were ski racers. They raced NCAA at Alaska. So, and both of their families were involved in the ski racing life. So it runs in the blood a little bit. Um, I guess I was put into a program when I was like, I want to say nine years old. And my dad coached me every year until I was second in U16 when I went to Burke. And so, yeah, we have a really cool relationship where he's my dad and also my coach and my biggest supporter. And we're a really great team. And we have this like really good dynamic where we know what my goals are and he's my biggest supporter to get me there. And even though he's not my coach right now, like he was before, we still work together super closely. Like we're analyzing my video. He always wants to know what I'm working on and he knows my race schedule. He's involved in my equipment and all that. So I think that's really helpful for me to be able to go to someone that I really trust. And he ultimately knows me better than any other coach I've had like in my ski racing life. So I can trust everything he says like super well. And he can also be there and be my a dad and be my biggest supporter in that way. So having both sides is like really helpful for me. Yeah. I've always wondered too, how parents and athletes balance that, you know, Michaela has her mom on the road. Petra has her brother, I've just wondered, you know, at what point does it stop being dad and start being coach Mm -hmm. and vice versa? You know, like it takes talent for a parent to do that. But was that hard to kind of reach that balance? Like sometimes you're just like, dad, leave me alone. Or is it like now it's coach dad and he tells me what to do. But when you get home, it's it's just dad. Yeah. Honestly, we've never really had any issues where he's like, say, wanted to coach me and I want him to just be play the role of being a dad. I think he knows the boundaries and is able to like give me the advice when I need it and let my coaches take that on when, when I'm doing all right. So yeah, I think it's really hard for him and, but he knows that role super well. So I'm really happy to have that. Yeah. That's so cool. I've always, my mom coached me for a long time water skiing and then a little bit behind the scenes alpine skiing, but she took a step back, but I was always wondering how far I would have made it if she continued, like always Mm -hmm. having someone in your court just to run ideas by and to have that balance between dad and coach or mom and coach and someone that's Mm -hmm. so supportive that you can bounce ideas off of. But is it hard for you to trust coaches like after you have someone that is so supportive and you know, they want like a parent always wants what's best for you? Mm -hmm. I think I I had him, like I said, all the way up until U16. So I didn't really I worked with other coaches a little bit as they, if they were like assistants or whatever, but he was like my ultimate coach and like my day-to-day coach, I guess. Um, and then when I went to Burke, I had 
a really good coach that I work super well with. And he also worked with my dad a lot. So they were able to like, you know, share opinions, share ideas. And it was a really good transfer over from being on a team that my dad is my coach to now a new team where I've got a completely different coach. So that was, that worked out really well. And then now I've moved onto the national team, where it's also has been a really good handoff where my dad's involved, but he knows the coaches are really um, great coaches and they have the ability to coach me at the right, the right level. So I think it's worked really well. Yeah, that's cool. It must be hard for your dad too, to be like, I trust you with my daughter yeah. and not so hands-on, you know, to take yeah. a step back. I think he would love to be super, super involved, but he also knows that I'm in really good hands where I am right now. Yeah. And that's kind of nice. It might give you more trust because you're like, if mm-hmm. my dad trusts them, I should trust them too. Like if he trusts them enough to take a step back. Mm-hmm. Because exactly. I remember when my main coach, I had a coach for, I don't know, eight years or so, and he moved teams. And I remember thinking, okay, the only way he'd move teams if it, is if he knew that I'd be okay by myself and a mm-hmm. few others of us that were still there. But I feel like that's a bit with your dad. You know, it's like, okay, I hand you off because I trust who you're with exactly. and also know that they're willing to work and include him and include, I'm sure your mom has some say being on the national team mm-hmm. too before. And I think him coaching me all the way up until you succeed was part of it. He wanted to be involved. He knew that the work that he was going to do was going to be above and beyond what an average coach would do. And he would be willing to sacrifice his whole life for it. He wasn't in it for the job or for the money. He was there for me and to make me and the rest of the team like high level athletes. Um, so I guess that was also super helpful and good for him to know that he's in control of making me the best athlete that he can be, that I can be. Do you think that's why you work so hard? Because it's rare to see someone be so serious, work so hard at such a young age. Do you think that's why you work so hard? Because he kind of instilled that in you, or do you think it was kind of Burke or the girls you were around there? I think I had like that drive and like want for the sport before I went to Burke. And I believe that it came a lot from my dad too. He's like always pushed me to the hardest and he knows what my limit is and he wants to like push me right to it and just pass it every day. Whereas some other coach that doesn't know me could be satisfied with the work I did. But if he watches me do something that's, you know, below average, he's going to tell me that and I'm going to, you know, push extra hard because I know that there, there are my limits and that he can see right through them. Yeah. Yeah. I love that because I think that's what takes a good coach dad or not that they get Mm -hmm. to know each and every athlete. And it's like, where is that limit? How can I push just to it or maybe just pass it? And then, you know, show support through those really hard times when you're, it's hard to push your limits. And is that something that was shocking? Like when you made the national team, were you shocked for the work that is put in or you were totally prepared for that part? I think I was pretty prepared. I, over the past like couple years before making the national team, I was always trying to do like more than what was offered at Burke, like using that extra time to do workouts when they say to take the off day and, you know, doing extra runs in the course when the others like are done for the day and trying to ask get extra sessions in. So I think it's more me internally and the work with my dad that I've done rather than the way Burke shaped me. Okay. That's really cool. I like that. And that's kind of, I had a podcast with Dave riding, I think 
um, a couple of weeks ago and he was saying the same thing. It's consistency. You know, it's not yeah. doing more any one given day. It's like doing more consistently or looking for where you can make that difference consistently. Yeah. And that's a good point. I think it kind of sets people apart, you know, and, and for sure you have set yourself apart by that consistency every single day. And can you walk us through your first world cup then? Cause it was sold in oh, and God. sold in yeah. is <laughs> like, let's just talk about sold in for a second because I've raced it a couple of times. I've also pulled myself once, <laughs> not in the start a couple of days before, but Solden, you don't feel ready because it's the beginning of the season. Mm-hmm. And then you get on this hill for training, usually a couple of days before for the free ski. And the hill is pancake flat at the start and then does a 90 degree turn, which is not easy. And that's not onto the pitch. That's like where everyone says it's easy because it's flat. And that 90 degree turn is so hard. And you, if you miss it, that means you're coming over the pitch, which is the steepest in the circuit <laughs> and the longest maybe. And you're coming over that, sometimes getting air, and you have to maintain that line and that rhythm and everything down the pitch. And it kind of sets people apart. Solden is, I mean, people love it or people hate it. Mm-hmm. Um, but how was racing Solden? Like the hardest yeah, track was, for your first World Cup? That was quite the, quite the first World Cup for sure. And like hearing all the days leading up, like all the hype around it, that it's like the steepest, longest, most challenging. And I'm like, Oh my God, like, <laughs> is this really going to be my first world cup? And I remember it went from a couple days before the race to me texting my parents, like, Oh my God, I'm training next to Michaela Schifrin <laughs> to two days later, me being like, I'm racing with Michaela Schifrin. We're on the same start list. We're going through the same course. We just inspected the same course. And I think that's where it kind of hit me. I remember she finished her run to his bib one or two or something like that. And I was just going up for my run as she was coming down. And I was like, wow, this is actually happening. I'm actually racing in the same exact race as Michaela Schifrin. So I think that was like the turning point in my head that it really clicked that I'd be racing the World Cup. And I was super lucky at this World Cup to have so many like close friends and family. My parents flew out to watch the race and Berkman Academy came to watch the Alberta ski team and then a few other friends from the area. So having all these like close people there to support me felt like really, really, really helpful. And I remember I was standing at the top before my run and I was like looking down in the crowd and there's, you know, like so many people there. And I thought, okay, my mom, my dad, and five of my best friends are standing down there. No matter how this goes, they're going to be extremely proud of me, no matter what, if it's my best day or my worst day. And I think that was like super helpful to me to know that feeling. Yeah. And I get shivers when you said that, because (laughs) it's so easy to lose yourself in the results, you know, Mm -hmm. be so disappointed in how you do, but regardless of how you do, they're your family and they're your friends. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that we lose sight of. I for sure lost sight of it a few times in my career. And it's something that I held on to as a life support for sure in the later years of my career, that no matter how you do, they're your people, you know, you're, they're your mm-hmm. trusted people. So it's cool that they were there and that you actually, like that went through your head. I think it's maybe yeah. where your maturity comes from because you actually leaned on that in a time of pressure that it's like, it doesn't matter. I get to go and race with Michaela Schiffer and I'm going to race my heart out and they're there in the finish regardless of how I do. And they're going to give me Mm -hmm. a hug because it's like, they're proud of me. Exactly. And a funny story, actually, um, not that many people know this, but I was going up the chairlift for my run and I like just started bawling, like for literally no reason. And I remember I called my dad and I'm like, I'm bawling my eyes out. I don't know why it was like 
nerves, with like excitement, with fear, with like, this is the coolest day of my life all put together. (laughs) It was like, I'm not someone to cry a lot. And I think a lot of people that know me well know that I barely cry. And that was probably one of the couple times during the full year that I cried. And it was like such a moment where I was like, wow, this is every emotion coming in at once, like 10 minutes before my run, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. What did your dad say? He was like really good about like keeping me calm. He's like, Britt, you've worked hard to get here. You're no matter how you do this run. Like we know you're skiing really well right now to be in the race. Like, yeah, he was able to like calm me down a lot, which was super helpful. And I knew that he could. And that's why I called him. <laughs> He's standing at the bottom in the crowd of a million people picking up the phone, being like, why is Britt calling me? <laughs> I'll share something too with my dad. Cause my dad was always on the hill and he takes pictures on the hill. And for my last race, so your first world cup, my last world cup, I, um, uh, I knew, but I hadn't announced it yet. And my parents knew. So they were there and I gave my dad a hug in the finish and my dad hardly cries. And I cry a lot, but my dad hardly cries. And I gave him a hug and he was shaking because he was in tears because uh, I realized that like, it's a transition for him too. You know, I, yeah, I spent so long on the team and he spent so many years taking photos of me and being there mm-hmm. and, and meeting people and everything that um, I've never seen him so emotional. And I was like, Aww, I that's can't so break cute. down right now. No one knows what's happening. But <laughs> you're yeah, like, secret. Really, yeah, it was really special. So sidebar about dads. They're yeah. our biggest supporters. Oh, for sure. Yeah, but that's, and then Kranska. Can, mm-hmm. Was Kranska the highlight of your season? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but... I think I have to say Solden was like Solden was the coolest day of my life. I guess the moment where I like skied the best and everything kind of came together was Kranska. Yeah, because second World Cup, mm-hmm. so much stress leading in as we had a COVID outbreak on our team. And that was um, chaos. <laughs> chaos leading in. Super difficult hill once mm-hmm. again. Like you've raced on two of the most difficult hills. And what went through, was that different? Was anything different going through your mind? I think I went into the race with a similar intention. If that I've gotten those first World Cup nerves like out of the way, because those were so extreme. <laughs> so being able to push that aside and like being more focused on my skiing and what I had to get done that day, I was able to focus a little bit more on the exact tasks that I had to do. And my run came together and I like punched in the top 30. I was like 20 seventh after the first run and I was like all right this is it's my time of a clean course I have all the support I need the coaches my equipment's ready to go and this is where I had to just like lay down a run and try to move up a little bit so I ended up in 22nd which was super exciting to me to you know get my first points and on a pretty challenging hill and the conditions were like quite rough I have to say starting I don't know as if like 50 something so wasn't smooth first run but yeah. Yeah. And that's really rare because a lot of the time when people qualify for the first time, top 30, they kind of hold back. Cause they're like, I just mm-hmm. want to finish and get this result. But for you to stand there and say, okay, I'm top 30 and now I want to move up and I want to execute mm-hmm. and I want to do that. And you did that and you came 22nd. That's a really cool mindset. And I think what was also cool that day is it was such a strong day for Canada and for yeah. Val to come into fourth that day. We're yeah. so close to the podium. There was like so much hype in general, whether it was like me making top 30, Val being in fourth, like then the slalom girls the next day you guys were coming in and yeah, there was just so much good energy at the time. Yeah. And how important is it to have Val there 
as a mentor, as someone that's a little bit older, obviously coming top 10 and Mm -hmm. she's like a top contender. How important is that? It's so cool. I think she's really good about if I ask her like, oh, can I have a course? Like, can you tell me about the course? Or like, what are you trying to think about? Or how are you coming to this turn? Like, she's not going to hold back and like, you know, tell me a half-ass course report. Like she's going to give me every detail so that I can do my best as well. And I think that's a really cool value for a teammate to have. So I, it definitely has helped me a lot in my first few World Cups, like being able to have Val there and knowing what she's doing is like what I want to be doing and hearing it from her is really helpful for me. Yeah. And I think that's what builds trust because I was doing this course and they asked, you know, what are people, what kind of people am I attracted to in relationships and teammates and everything? Mm -hmm. And it's those people that support you, you know, they're there, but they really challenge you, you know, that it's like, it's not what you want to hear and you might be Mm -hmm. challenged and they might not always agree with you, but you can, it's the truth and you can trust that course report because you know, it's the truth. And she's going to tell mm-hmm. you how it feels and how she felt. And, you know, I think that's really cool that she puts as much into her skiing. She's such a hard worker as she does into, you know, kind of bringing people up with her, which I think is so mm-hmm. important. And sometimes we don't emphasize that enough, how important that like really strong team is. And you can see it with what happened with the Psalm team this year. And then what's happening with the GS team, how strong, your team is. And so like Val kind of pulls up and you, you chase her and you're there and then someone else comes up and chases and then Cass is there and she's pushing super hard. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what makes us great. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's like your biggest competitors, but also the biggest, your biggest asset. Yeah. And I think this is something that we as Canadians have where some other Euro countries might not have is we're we're competitors, but this is how we did able to, you know, work well with them and try to motivate each other and build each other up is like super, super crucial in, in the sport. Yeah. And that's something that I'm a little bit interested in because I'm really passionate about trying to keep girls in sport. I think you mm-hmm. know this. And I kind of wonder, you know, what is the thing that we can do to make the difference to keep girls in sport? Because I think the number of girls and boys at a young age is basically the same, if not more girls. And then all of a sudden, 16, 17, the girls stop racing, stop playing Mm -hmm. soccer, stop doing everything. Do you have any insight? You know, because you're just coming out of those like super formative years. Do you have any insight into that? Yeah, I think there's some girls that are just so hard themselves. And if they, if they don't reach their goal in that year, then like they kind of feel like what's the point. And they, that if they're wasting their time, they might as well move on and start going to school and like getting an education. And I'm sure there's so many girls out there and so many girls that have been teammates with that I see potential. And I know that if they like kept pushing, they, and they had the drive, they could like make it to the national team, but it's about, like keeping with it and like sticking through those hard years, even if they aren't going the way you want and like realizing what your end goal is and like trying to build up to that. And I think some girls like lack the, um, what's the right word for this? (laughs) I guess the, the length of time that it takes to make it all the way up. And it's so easy to rush year after year that if one year didn't work, like, why am I here? What am I doing? So yeah, I think that's kind of where, where it drops off. I wonder if part of it too is from kind of social media and Instagram, because Mm -hmm. 
so much perfection is placed on girls. Like you have to be strong, but also skinny, but also beautiful, but you have to be aggressive and Mm -hmm. you need to perform by this age. And if you don't, then your chances go down of performing. And if you're not taking steps to improve, then, you know, there's, there's just so much perfectionism. Yeah placed on us, but boys too, but just talking about girls for a second placed on us. And I don't know. I think also in society, it's hard because, you know, if I post on Instagram, a highlight reel, that's great. And people look at that. But if I post something like I fell or some really deep writing, people question if I'm having trouble. And so it's really depressed or something. So it's really hard to show what actual life is that there's struggles and, not everyone's journey is this straightforward path or we have, Mm -hmm. we question what our bodies look like, or we question why we're here. And there's these like ebbs and flows, but it's not shared. And I just wonder a little bit how much harm we're doing to that, those formative years when everyone's just looking at perfection, like the best photos and these Photoshop filters. And not only that, the writing being like, today was a great day. Um, in a beautiful place, but sometimes it's like a crappy day in a beautiful place. It's true. Yeah. I think that's so prominent, especially in like my kind of age right now. And sadly, more friends than not. And like girls I know around my age are struggling with the same issue and going on social media every day and seeing like the ideal body shape is like, 110 pounds when why how did that become the idea like why isn't strong and like aggressive and you know super athletes like why is that not what's like the top the top body shape I guess and we've seen like a couple people within our sport that have struggled with eating disorders and we know it's not possible to continue in the sport if you're not feeling your fueling your body we need like the energy on the hill and then we'll go to the gym and you know it's really sad to see this and I feel for these girls that struggle with it because it's so easy to get wrapped up with it with social media and what's going on in our world right now I I totally agree and I as I was coaching I heard some people saying that girls don't want to lift heavy weights because they don't want to put on mass or they don't want to look muscular or manly and for me that was pretty upsetting actually, because, you know, we need to lift weights because we need to be strong, not only to perform and to be the best we can be, but to be healthy and to prevent injuries and to be strong and to even mentally, like, you know, when you push so hard in the gym and then when you're on the hill, you know, you give a little, you have that little bit extra to give. And I found that so sad that social media kind of makes us think this certain way. But as you said, why can't the ideal, why, like, maybe there shouldn't even be an ideal body type, especially for skiing. It's like everyone is, we have Lara Goon, we have Petra and we have Schifrin and we have Val and everyone's totally different that, mm-hmm. you know, it should be, we should be lifting these people up for being so strong and muscular and powerful. But instead it's, you know, this, it's so hard. And I understand why it's so hard, but it's so hard in the brain to be like, um, this is why, you know, instead of what you exactly. look like, it's like, what can you do? But was yeah. that hard for you? Because, you know, the rest of the girls might be looking at social media and trying to think of a certain thing. And you're trying to reach this goal of being 
ultimately an Olympic gold medalist. So you're working Mm -hmm. in the gym and you're fueling yourself and that's your goal. Was it hard? Is it hard? I mean, you're still young. I think this, the team that we have right now, everyone is very food driven and, you know, wanting to fuel ourselves super well so that we can do what we want on the hill and in the gym in within my like non-athletic friends or at work, I would say the talk around eating is very different and in a negative way. And, you know, I, I want to try my best to have that mindset change and what make strong bodies and strong girls like the ideal, but it's so hard to change this mindset when everything over, you know, Instagram and TikTok is all about being a 110 pound Victoria's Secret model. When yeah. we're all athletes, why, why do we want that? That's going to help us not at all. <laughs> yeah. And it's not even realistic. You know, we've done squats our whole lives and they're saying, if you do this exercise, you're going to get this kind of body. I've done this exercise for 14 years. It's not the body it created. You know, the body it created was something that can ski downhills fast and take a hit when it needs to take a hit or a beating sometimes like a flip or whatever on skis that Mm -hmm. uh, you're right. It's so hard. Like, how do they set this? How do they even set these goals? And I don't even know if there's a way to go about it except to kind of celebrate the normal or to reach back in our own communities and you know, hopefully, you know, Mitch is a great person that's so focused on what she needs to do to be the best, how she needs to fuel, how she needs to work out, what mass she needs to put on or take off in order to be successful that she, I mean, for me, she was a Mm -hmm. huge influence in my career. And I was lucky to kind of have her doing that beside me. But I just hope we have those influences coming up for those girls that are just looking at Instagram as well. Yeah, I think between like, our younger girls like me, Sarah, Kiki and Cass were all very on the same page. And we've actually talked about this discussion like a lot and a lot with our time together. And we want to make sure that there's no negative comments around food like in at all this season. And that, you know, one thing leads to another and we can't be willing to take the risk of making some small comment about you eating a cookie or whatnot. So I think it's really helpful to be in an environment that we're on the same page about it. And we want to be healthy and strong to be able to compete at the highest level in our sport. Yeah. I love that you, that you banded together as teammates to be like, Mm -hmm. food is not something negative. Food is fuel and we're not going to make it something negative. And let's like do this together so that no one, one tears anyone down, which we have so much of in sport. But the other thing is you're kind of lifting each other up and changing Mm -hmm. the conversation. And that bothered me too, that it was like, Oh, I had this. Now I have to go work out because it's not like that. It's like, it's fueling us. It's making us stronger. It's making us better. And sometimes mm-hmm. you do need that extra little bit of fat or a bit of muscle to, to handle. I mean, it's not just about performance. It's about safety sometimes too. And For if you sure. were to say, not even about this topic, but in general, just being new on the national team, so many girls striving for where you are that are just a little bit younger than you, Mm-hmm. And it's less relatable for me because I'm older, but what would you, what would you say to them? Or what would you say to your younger self or those girls right now kind of trying to make that next step in yeah, general, think, anything? <laughs> yeah. I think my biggest advice would kind of be what we were talking about before is taking it day by day, training session by training session and like not letting your ultimate goal distract you and like, you know, make your mind go insane every day when you have like 
a bad run or a bad day and just keeping it simple. I think that's one of the biggest things is we get all caught up in like, you got to do this and you got to go here. And if you don't do this race, you're not going to make it to here. And okay, that's fine, but let's keep it like minimal and simple and just take it day by day to reach your ultimate goal. And eventually if you have the drive and you're able to push hard every day, you're likely going to build up slowly and slowly and hopefully make it to the national team one day or whatever that individual's goal may be. So cool to hear that because I just keep hearing top performers say that like consistently just work hard every day, get back up, work hard again, get back up. And I think that's such a powerful thing because as I'm finding now, as I transition out of sport, it kind of serves you well outside of sport too. You know, it's like developing that grit and that hard work and that ethic and just consistently developing a habit that's no longer, you don't even have to think about it. Like in the morning, you do your morning warm up, and it's no longer a thought, which mm-hmm. I think makes us, I don't know, it, it, it's what helps get through those tough days. And I really like the way you said it because yeah, sometimes you can get pretty down, but it's not any one result or any one day. It's just this next step, keep going, keep consistently working hard. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good point. It's not that I am like forgetting about my ultimate goal. Like that's always in my mind, but when I'm on the hill and when I'm training, I'm not thinking about being an Olympian. I'm not trying to think about being on a, a world cup medalist. Cause that's not going to help me. I need to think about like fixing my line so that I can like move better in the course. And you know, when you're watching video, you're not being like, okay, but if I do this one thing, that'll make me an Olympian. No, no, no. If you do that one thing, it'll improve your skills in ski racing and you'll be able to build up to the next level and eventually make it there. Yeah. And I think it's so important how you said it, that not any one thing makes a difference because I think we get asked this a lot, a lot. I get asked it a lot now that I'm older and kind of out of the sport what can I do to make the difference or how important is this? Or should we head head to this race series or something? But as you said, it's not really any one particular decision. You know, that's not going to be the difference maker. It's how you spend every single day working towards that decision. So are you tuning your skis? Are you mm-hmm. going to physio or doing your exercises? Are you doing that morning warm up? Are you doing that extra couple runs or pushing that extra little bit in the gym? But every day, because yeah. races will be there. I don't think it matters exactly if you're chasing points or going to this one race, because even if you go to that one race and you score, then you have to go to Kranzkagora and race against <laughs> Michaela Schifrin and Petra and things like that. And I think yeah. that it's that consistency that makes you consistently good, regardless of the race you go to or yeah. the training session where you find yourself. Yeah. I think one thing for me is like all the way through, it's not about trying to fit in and be with the rest of the girls. Even if we have all the same goals and we all want to be like world cup ski racers, I shouldn't be lumping myself in with them. What can I do? That's above and beyond. What can I do to like make a difference in like that season to make me just that much closer to my end goal? Yeah, that's cool. And sometimes it's not working more. It's just working smarter or working yeah. in a different way. If something's not exactly. working, how can I shift? Yeah. And in saying that, I know things are, I don't know. I know that you've been through some tough times too, but what do you see the biggest obstacle that you've overcome or that you still have to work at in your life right now or in skiing? Yeah, that's a good question. Something that comes to mind first that I wouldn't say I've overcome and I never will overcome, but 
I was diagnosed with arthritis when I was 14 years old. And I think that's been the biggest battle for me, like all the way through ski racing. The biggest nightmare in a sport is to have your body not there and not be able to like push it the way you want to because of a limitation. But for me, it's been like really learning about what works for me. And I'm not like Cassidy Gray. I can't do exactly what she does. We have different bodies. We are going to cripple at different times. Like how can I make an individual program for me to make sure that my body like holds up through the season? And I think that's been like the biggest learning curve, especially over the past couple of years. Like I may wake up in one morning and realize I can't train and it's okay to be like, okay, I'm going to free ski today or I'm going to do sections. And like, I guess acknowledging it is a big thing for me. Like I push it away and like knew it was a thing, but didn't let it like, you know, change my everyday routine, even though like it has to realistically, I need to do some things differently so that I don't flare up and, and like out of the sport for a while. So I guess that's been the biggest obstacle for me in ski racing is like trying to deal with that and make sure that I can do everything right to keep my body at the a good state to push hard in the hill. Yeah. And that's such a huge obstacle because it's, you don't know when it's going to flare. You're left in so much pain. It's not something that's really like do these physio exercises and you'll be good in six weeks. It's something that Mm -hmm. kind of stays with you. And so it's kind of a mental battle as well. I'm just relating it back to my back pain, which is not arthritis, but definitely chronic. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's such a powerful thing to listen to your body, to advocate for yourself and to be able to say, okay, today I'm, I'm not able to do that because if you push it away, like you said, it, it'll affect your career in one way or the other. And for me, I pushed it away for 13 years, just like I'm going to live normally. And when I finally slowed down and changed how I was kind of going about it and stopped pushing through it, but pushing really hard on the days when I could, but backing off on the days when I knew I couldn't, that Mm -hmm. that's when the huge difference came into my life. And that's so nice. Like it's so, it's such a challenge to learn, but it's also Mm -hmm. makes me so proud of you that you've learned it so young. And I mean, I was laughing the other day with someone because it feels like we always learn the same lessons again. Like I kept learning the same lesson in skiing and I'm like, Oh, I got this. And then I'd be humbled again and have to learn the same lesson all over again. Right. Probably with that kind of chronic pain, it's like, you'll be humbled again and, and push through it and then be like, I learned this. What am I thinking? Mm -hmm. Why do I have to relearn it again? Which is, it is a big, you know, I think sometimes in skiing, people compare hardship, you know, it's like this person tore their knee, this person broke their back, this person spent this long trying to get on a team or whatever, but we never really know what someone has been through and you don't talk about it that much. Like you could hardly Mm -hmm. know that you had it. You just told us at dinner a little bit Mm -hmm. that I think it's such an important lesson that we can't walk around thinking that this person got handed everything on a platter because they're having these huge obstacles that we can't even imagine. Yeah. That's a really good point. And yeah, I don't think I will ever, I know I won't ever be able to say I've overcome arthritis because it's part of me. It's like in my body, but I think I've learned so much. And even though I'm still in the process, like I've overcome the fact that I'm I'm now able to change my ways to try to like manage it. And I think it's more been in the past 
year, like six months even that I've really like noticed a change in like the way that I'm dealing with it. I was so good about pushing it away, but not in a good way. It was like, I would ignore it, but it would just build up and build up and build up to the point that I was like not able to perform. So everyone has these different aches and pains and we all have to deal with them differently. So I've slowly, I'm starting to learn how to deal with my pain. And then what was a highlight last year? Like not ski related, just life on the road, Mm -hmm. being with a team. Yeah. I think it's like the coolest thing, the places that we get to go to. And like, sometimes we take it for granted and we like forget that we're traveling around all these crazy cities and like all around Europe. But when I like take a step back and realize where I am and like the place I've got to look at and even simple things like going out for coffee in Zermatt, just going on a little walk and like seeing a cute coffee shop and like having coffee there is like, I don't know, a really, a really cool factor that I'm able to start to like appreciate more. And I talk to my friends at home and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I'm going to Europe and then I'm going to be, you know, in New Zealand and then I'm going to Italy and then I'm going to do this race here. And they're like, you're living in like a crazy world. (laughs) And sometimes I forget, but like taking a step back and realizing how many different cities we went to last year is like so cool. And the experiences we've gotten. Yeah. And that's something that I challenge you to always come back to because Mm -hmm. sometimes when it would get heavy or it feels like it's a lot, sometimes in the start gate, I would look out and be like, look where I am. Like this, I'm so lucky to be in the start gate. It's so beautiful. I'm wherever in the world Mm -hmm. and I'm so lucky to be here. And then sometimes if it even took more than that, then I would go and try to explore the place. Like you said, find a coffee shop or Mm -hmm. go for a run or a hike or somewhere where no one's ever been. And then I'll always remember the places. That's one question a a girl asked me the other day, like, what's your greatest memory of, Mm -hmm. you know, life on the road? And it's not really, of course it's a skiing and that was so big, but it's all these little moments between the big moments that I really remember a place for. Yeah. And be able to just like sit down for a moment and being like, this is gorgeous. This is so cool. Or the culture is so different from back at home is like definitely something that not everyone in the world gets to experience. And we're very lucky to be able to see all these places. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay. And the podcast is called Unspoken Bravery. So I try to always do a question around that, but how do you think girls your age, like teenage girls, how do you think they can be brave in the face of everything that's going on, you know, finishing high school during COVID, social media, um, tough time stepping onto teams sometimes? How do you think they can move forward and be brave? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's like, it's not about, I guess I kind of mentioned this earlier, but why not about fitting in? Like, what can you do above and beyond or like differently than someone else or like why just follow the exact same path as your friend and go to that high school because they left. Like it's worth taking that extra risk to like go somewhere else and try something new because it could be life-changing and the best change you've ever had. And you're not going to know that until you try. And I guess I'm probably a little guilty for this. Like I, I want to be more brave in my like everyday life and I want to try new things, whether it's like at a restaurant, like getting a different meal than I always get or something as big as like ski racing or going to school or like something like that. But I think it's like always just doing something 
because you see it's an opportunity and like a potential life path rather than someone else has. Yeah. And in my course, that was a challenge because they say that if you push, you don't want to push so far out of your comfort zone mm-hmm. that it's a trauma or it could go mm-hmm. super badly because then you might just stay in your comfort zone forever. But if you push just a little bit out of your comfort zone in a lot of different ways, like you said, at a restaurant, like it doesn't have to be huge or yeah. you know, skiing a little bit of a tighter line, not hugely drastic or mm-hmm. Speaking to the person next to you on a plane, definitely mm-hmm. my nightmare, but <laughs> doing these little things that slowly build a little bit of confidence at a time so that eventually, I guess it's like goal setting. It's like yeah. eventually you reach that big goal, but it's by pushing outside of your comfort zone a little bit at a time. Mm-hmm. So then eventually, like like you said, Norams, I think a couple of years ago in Collingwood, you were coming 31st in Norams and all of a sudden you're winning two Norams back to back. And it's not just because you, yeah. you know, snap your fingers and you make a change. It's because you push just a little bit every single day that two years mm-hmm. later, you're like, look where I am now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I see there's, you know, everyone has a different comfort zone and like, like drive to push past where they feel is a comfortable spot. But I would encourage all the girls out there and myself to, you know, take those little steps like each day to just like slightly reach your outside your comfort zone. And like, I think over years it's going to build up and like all of a sudden something that seems so big at a time, like, I don't know, doing, doing an interview like two years ago would have been like so chaotic. I would have been like so terrified for, and now it seems like a lot easier and it, I went out of my comfort zone a lot and now it feels more comfortable. So I think it's just building that up within like your personal comfort. Yeah, exactly. Building that tolerance. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what's your plan for school? Do you have a plan? That's a great question. So I deferred from Dartmouth two years ago, but you can only defer one year. So I likely won't be attending now. I had to like make a decision this year if I want to attend or not. And I've decided to take another year off and like just stick to ski racing and like see where this year can take me. I would love to race NCAA. And I think that is a potential path for me. But at the same time, like I look at my goals right now and I'm like, I don't want to put anything in the way of becoming the best gear I can. I can do school whenever. And I don't want to have regret because I was doing like half school, half skiing and like not being able to put my full energy and attention into skiing. And I think I'm willing to take the risk right now to, or at least for the next year or two, um, to see where skiing can take me. And maybe then after that, I decide that I want to race NCAA, but for this year and likely the year after, I think I just want to go all out in skiing. Yeah. And you actually, thank you for that because it's bothered me a long time that I didn't Mm -hmm. do school and skiing at the same time. I think if I did them at the same time, I wouldn't have had the podiums that I had or the Mm -hmm. success at such a young age um, because I'm an all-in type of person. I either go all-in in in school or I go all-in in in skiing and I chose skiing and I went all-in. And and like you said, I think now looking back in hindsight, I regret not going to school at the same time. But I think Mm -hmm. in the moment... I wanted to put everything in so that I wouldn't have regrets. And I made the best decision I could with what I had at that moment. And what I had was like, I'm going all in. I'm seeing where this takes me. What I wish I did do is take one 
course a year because by now I would have been graduated just taking one course a year. <laughs> right. So that's a good point. Yeah. And so I should you can I should look that. into that because that's very reasonable to take one course while being on the road. And like that's not gonna distract me or like, you know, take anything away from skiing, but I can slowly build up to having, you know, some some courses down or like start start the process of getting my education. Yeah, that's what I was. It is cool that we yeah, we do look at it similarly where we want to be a hundred percent in skiing and we don't want to have that like thought that if we did both at the same time, we'd be missing part of both sides. So it's kind of cool that we're looking at that in the same way, but that's it. It's a good point that maybe I should start taking a class or two every, every year during the summer or something like that. Yeah. That's what my friend did. And then she mm-hmm. retired and graduated in the same time, same year. And yeah. she just did one course a year and is now a teacher. And, but it, it is helpful for me to hear that from you. So thank you for that mm-hmm. because now I'm retired and I'm like, I haven't done school. What was I thinking? Of course you can always do school and it's there at any time, but you know, at the moment, like I said, and it's what Devin said in one past episode that I made a decision based on the information I had and knowing myself and, you know, I can't regret that now. Mm-hmm. And so I should not live with those regrets, but actually we're, we have more in common because we're birthday buddies. We are <laughs> on May 25th. And I also deferred at Dartmouth for yeah, a couple of years. We have a long yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's cool. funny. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for coming on and being patient through our technical difficulties and everything. (laughs) And I am so excited to watch your chapter and be a part of it in whatever way I'm a part of it. And, um, but I'm your biggest cheerleader and I'm just so glad we overlapped because ski racing is in good hands with you and I'm excited for the future. Thank you, Erin. And thank you for everything that you've taught me over the last year. Thank you. That means a lot. And um, with that, have good training these next weeks and um, good luck in your next camps. Awesome. Thank you for listening to Unspoken Bravery. My goal with this podcast is to connect with you through real life experiences. So I would love to hear from you. A hello, feedback, future ideas, you name it. You can reach me on my Instagram account at Erin Melzinski or head to my website, erinmelzinski.com. If you like the podcast, please share, review, and subscribe. I hope to see you back here to uncover your own hidden superhero.